Well, happy Sabbath, everybody. Just doing a sound check. If you can just confirm that you can hear my voice. I see Becca, RJ, Terry. Terry says you're new. Welcome, Terry. Great to have you. And Murray's on as well. Terry's from Alberta. Welcome, Terry. And let's see who else I see here as well. Let's see here. Amy, from looks like from Texas. Welcome, Amy. John, the Kowalczyks. Landon, Marion, the McCoys. Peter, Pilgrim, Sarah, Wilcox family, Sabbath Keeper, L.O.P. and Al and Siegerman, or S.L. German. Beautiful. Welcome, everybody. I'm just waiting for a confirmation that you can hear my voice and also that you can hear the piano. Okay, I'm seeing. I'm seeing uh, Gary Monks from the UK saying that sound is good on Facebook. Arlene from Kansas and Vicky Steiner. Okay, looks like sound is good. I'm just waiting for confirmation as well that you can hear the piano. So no piano. Uh, let me just hang on because there is a bit of a delay and I started the piano a bit later. You just confirm whether or not you can hear the piano. Okay, no piano. We're going to have to do something different here in a second. Okay, we just made an adjustment. We'll see if the piano is coming through now. with my voice at this time. Oh yes, piano, wonderful, beautiful, <laughs> praise God. All right, we'll be starting in a couple of minutes. Thank you, Peter, for confirming that. I'll just check on Facebook as well. Soft piano, let me see if I can turn the piano up a bit. Four, thanks for the greetings. Happy Sabbath to you as well. Gary Monks from the UK, greetings and happy Sabbath. We'll just be starting in just a little over a minute.
Well, good afternoon, brethren. On this double Sabbath weekend here, on the, the Feast of Pentecost has almost arrived. We've arrived at the uh, Sabbath of the seventh week, day 49 of the Omer count, and certainly uh, extend our, our warmest greetings to everyone, apparently from across North America and even overseas. Uh, we have some brethren joining us from England. We have a new, uh, uh, a new uh, brother or sister from uh, Alberta. And certainly folks that uh, have, have extended comments in the chat from all over the United States and Canada, certainly welcome to everyone. We are very grateful to be able to bring this uh, service to you on this Sabbath day, this Holy Sabbath day. Again, day 49 of the Omer count. We are on the seventh day of the third month of God's calendar with the day of Pentecost arriving at sunset this evening. Uh, so we, this is the, this service as usual, as you know, is being uh, broadcast by the Ottawa and Burlington congregations. And we have a couple of our Ottawa brethren helping us today. Ottawa is a, is our national capital and the brethren up in Ottawa live in about three different areas. Some in Montreal, some in Ottawa proper and some down in Kingston. We've got a brother here today from the Kingston area, brother Jim Leith, that is going to bring us the opening prayer. Brother Jim. Thank you. Our Father in heaven, our great God and provider, we just thank you for this opportunity to gather together before your throne and, and hear words that you have prepared for us through your ministry. Just ask your blessing on the speaking, that it might be uplifting to us and, and on the hearing that we might understand and, and learn from it. We just place this service in your hands and this special day 49 uh, on the eve of the Feast of Weeks. And we just ask all these things in the name and by the authority of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Thank you, Brother Jim. I will now proceed to the first hymn of our service. Uh, it is in, on page 61 of your hymn books, but don't worry if you don't have your hymn book. As you know, we will post the words on the screen. We'll be singing, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And on this uh, Pentecost weekend, we are so blessed to be assured of God's faithfulness to his covenant and his plan. Page 61, Great is Thy Faithfulness.
Thank you, Sister Jennifer, for playing the piano for us on that hymn, and thank you, brethren, for singing along. I know we can't hear you, but I know God does, and and uh, it's a it's a blessing and a pleasure to be able to sing hymns together, even in our isolation. For those of you who are new uh, and joining us new or haven't joined us before, uh, we do now have a scripture reading that will uh, lead us into the sermon. Uh, sermon coming up uh, after in a little bit, but the scripture reading is taken from Job 36 verses 1 through 6, and it will be read to us by another brother from the Ottawa congregation, uh, Brother Peter Wilcox. That's Job 36, 1 to 6. Peter? Elihu also proceeded and said, Bear with me a little, and I will show you that there are yet words to speak on God's behalf. I will fetch my knowledge from afar. I will ascribe righteousness to my maker. For truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. Behold, God is mighty, but despises no one. He is mighty in strength of understanding. He does not preserve the life of the wicked, but gives justice to the oppressed. Thank you, Brother Peter. Amen to that scripture reading. Uh, before we get to another hymn and followed by the sermon, we just have a few announcements here that we'll go through. Uh, tomorrow, as you know, is the Feast of Pentecost, the day of Pentecost. And services, uh, our service will be held here at the same, same location on your internet at 2.30, same time, same station, as they say. And we're grateful to be able to bring that to you in addition to some of the other services that you may have watched today in Medina, or from Tyler, or perhaps your your local areas. We're certainly uh, blessed and, and honored to be able to bring you another service here in the mid-afternoon. Uh, coming up this week on Wednesday at 7.30, as as usual, is the interactive or the Bible study. Uh, this week will be at Judges chapter 8, and feel free to go back into the archives to catch the first uh, seven chapters of Judges, but this week it'll be Judges chapter 8. Uh, last night was the first interactive study put on by Elder Mike James, and it was a success. There were over 40 connections, and uh, uh, Brother Mike will continue to do these on the weeks that Bots does not air. So watch for future announcements there. Uh, last night he got through the first half of Where Are Enoch and Elijah, uh, that being Enoch, and he will continue next time with the Elijah portion of that, that Bible study. He's going to be doing these um, to cover uh, basic doctrines. Uh, in uh, in an interactive way, um, and he'll be doing that again, as I say, on the weeks that BOTS is not uh, being broadcast on Friday evenings. A few local prayer requests that have come to light this week, at least locally up here, and I know a lot, we all have our long, long list of prayer requests, uh, but from the London area, one of our elderly members, uh, Bill, brother Bill Merrifield, again, is in hospital as he uh, his days are winding down in his words. And, uh, he's in, in comfort of, and, and is in, in, is feeling okay about it. He certainly, uh, has been struggling for a long, long time with his health issues. And in fact, his daughter and granddaughter who don't attend with us, uh, have been connecting with us on the Thursday prayer calls in the London area. But please keep, uh, our brother Bill and his family in your prayers as, as they work through a, 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 a serious health situation for their family. And, but we are, um, we are certainly inspired by, uh, Brother Bill's attitude that he is, is, um, awaiting, awaiting the, the, his resurrection. And that is certainly the hope that lies within us and certainly lies within our brother. 
Uh, Harry and Susan Noctegall from the Woodstock area. Uh, Susan continues to deteriorate in her plight with dementia. And this certainly places, uh, as an elderly couple, a long, long-time couple in God's church, certainly places a taxing burden on Harry during these uh, times of isolation. So please keep uh, Susan and Harry in, in your prayers as they, as they cope with the health struggles that they're dealing with. Our sister from uh, Nova Scotia, Maria Brown, who we've mentioned before, has had a flare-up of her uh, fibromyalgia. So, and she's asked for prayer, so please keep uh, Sister Maria in your prayers, her and her husband Gary out in rural Nova Scotia. And we did hear back uh, from our brother John Plunkett, him and his wife Trisha are on the uh, island, uh, Vancouver Island, out in BC. And uh, Trisha remains in hospital without the ability to see her family, and we know Trisha's going through a, uh, some severe health struggles. Uh, doctors are confident in her long-term recovery from her physical ailments, but please keep her and her family, or her husband John, their four daughters, and their their, their extended families. Our, uh, one of their daughters is married to a, a brother in the faith, uh, Brother Warren Lee. Please keep them all in your prayers as they as they cope with uh, trying to help her along in her health struggles and also uh, not being able to be with her physically. But an exci- a little bit of exciting news from Vancouver Island. They will be meeting for Pentecost in person tomorrow due to the restrictions being eased uh, to allow them to come together. Uh, we can only pray that uh, here in our, our part of the world, in Ontario, Canada, Central Canada, that we can have our restrictions eased so that we can begin to gather again like uh, some of the other areas in North America and around the world that have started to be able to regather. But we are grateful, uh, as we mentioned, and we don't mention it often enough, we are grateful for all the hard work that has gone into this technology, efforts led by uh, Jeff Reed, Wesley Wortham, Bill Watson, and our own Adrian Davis that have allowed us to be able to gather uh, during these times of isolation. We're certainly very grateful for that. That's the end of the announcements here in the prayer requests. We will proceed to another hymn before and then go directly into our sermon, which will be brought to us today by our pastor, Adrian Davis. His sermon is entitled The Inner Journey, The Inner Journey, and that will be brought to you by our pastor, Adrian Davis. That will be immediately following the next hymn we will sing, so direct your your gaze to your screen. We will sing page 106, We Have a Story to Tell to the Nations. That's page 106, We Have a Story to Tell to the Nations, followed by the sermon by Pastor Adrian, The Inner Journey.
Well, greetings, brethren. Uh, good afternoon and maybe good morning, good evening, depending on which part of the world that you are tuning in from. What a lovely hymn that we just finished, that we, in fact, do have a story to tell to the nations. And Pastor Murray really brought our attention to the importance of story a few weeks ago when he gave uh, his sermon and really focused our attention on a quote that he says of people who stop telling their stories are a people who will cease to exist. Well, with the current pandemic and the associated uh, economic conditions, many people have lost not only their health, they've lost their wealth and their welfare as well. What if you lost everything that you hold dear? What would you have left? Another way that I could ask this very same question is, who are you, really? When we strip away everything that's on the outside, what's left? What is the essence of who you really are? Do you know? And are you honest with yourself and with others about who you really are? God looks at and evaluates who we really are, the outer appearance notwithstanding. The challenge for us as Christians is how do we reconcile the outward appearance with what is really going on on the inside? When God looks at us, well, let's, let's go over to 1 John 4. You know, we may think we love God and we may proclaim our love for God. And yet when God evaluates us, he may come to the conclusion that we actually hate him. We think we love him. He concludes that we hate him. How could there be such a discrepancy? And we're going through the book of Judges now. And God, as he evaluates Israel, he says they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And yet when Israel evaluates Israel, they did what was right in their own eyes. So we have to be careful that we are not evaluating ourselves as doing what is right in our eyes. But by the standard of the scripture, we're falling significantly short. Look at First John 4 and verse 20, where John writes that if a man say, a Christian, I love God, I, I hope we would all say that, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he that loves not his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loves God love his brother also. So here is an acid test. Do we truly love the brethren? Because if that, that is how God is going to evaluate, he gives us his word and it's a commandment that we must love the brethren. Evidence that there might be a problem uh, is, you know, before the um, ban on associ associating and, or fellowshipping together in person, uh, how much did you prize and prioritize our assembly? Now that we're meeting online, how much do you prize and prioritize our assembly? And I know many of us do, but there are among us people who are kind of flippant, kind of casual about it. I might go to service today. I might not. I might attend the service. I might not. We might also look at how do we appear in person and online? Many of us, I think we're pretty authentic. We are who we are. What you see is what you get. But we can also fall into the trap of fronting. We put on a front, whether in person or digitally. 
In person, we try to look the part, speak the right words. Maybe online, we try to be the know-it-all. We try to be the person who never has a question. We always have an answer. We're always there to tell everybody what what's what. But we never put ourselves in a submissive or an inferior position. We always have to be the superior, have the chief seats. God would have a problem with this because that's not true love. And then finally, again, let's ask this question. What if we lost everything? People woke up one day, everything was gone. Their businesses, they lost their business, their jobs, their maybe their health. That can happen overnight to any of us. And so it begs the question, who are we really? And what I want to do in answering that question is answer the question that our brother Jan posed last week. And his sermon was entitled, From Slavery to Freedom, Then What? From Slavery to Freedom, Then What? And it's a, it's a question that we really have to think about and contemplate as we, uh, Israel, moved from slavery to freedom, as we as the Israel of God have inherited this freedom, the first fruits of Israel, what next? What do we do with this freedom? What's the point of this freedom? In Hebrews 2 and verse 13, we see this very interesting text that, again, if we're thinking about stories, stories have a beginning, a middle, and an end. We see this interesting text that gives us a sense of how the story will end. In Hebrews 2 and verse 13, we read, And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God has given me. So here we're seeing how the story ends. We're seeing the finish line. That Christ, whatever this journey is that he was on, there's a set of children that come through the same journey with him. He says, behold, I and the children which God has given me. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. So now we're getting the middle of the story. So he left heaven and he came to earth and took on flesh and blood. And now he's back in heaven and he's going to return. And when he returns, he's going to say, behold, I and the children which God has given me. So the same way that we are flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. So this is the power that the devil has, the power of death. And so when you see, when you look at what's happening globally with this pandemic, that is the devil's power. He has everybody afraid of death. People might die. You know, you know what? Newsflash, human beings die. We, we should have a sober sense of, okay, yeah, we're mortal. But now we're acting like people can't die. Oh, no, people might die. And through that power, the devil is able to take freedom away. So one answer to the question, you know, from slavery to freedom, then what? A return to slavery. Hopefully not. Hopefully not. But that seems to be all indication because of this power that the devil has, that the, the fear of death. But Christ has come. So that that power can be destroyed. And in fact, the devil himself can be destroyed. That through death, that is through the death of Christ, he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them, that's us and those who trust in him, who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And so now the whole world is being subject to bondage through this a fear of death. But Christ came so that we would be free from that bondage. So the Christian walk that we've been called to 
is freedom from bondage. And it is the solution to this bondage, this power that Satan has. And it's true freedom. So I'll say what the answer to the question from from slavery to freedom, then what? Then true freedom. And that is through transformation. So from slavery to freedom to transformation leading to true eternal freedom. Let's go to Romans 12. Romans 12. And right at the beginning, verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes to the Romans and to us by extension, I'm begging you, brethren. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. So there is a place that the Christian must get to where it's no longer about us. We're willing to sacrifice ourselves, become living sacrifices, and that, in fact, is a form of uh, slavery, where we're, we're being in bondage to God, which is true freedom. The alternative is to be enslaved to our own egos, our own desires, our own lusts, which is true slavery, because then the devil, you're either serving the devil or you're serving God, and it's, it's a choice. Christians choose to be liberated and serve God as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So this transformation, and we've been in this count through the Feast of Weeks, coming up now to the final day of the count, to come fully into the day of Pentecost, uh, commemorate, commemorating the receipt of the Holy Spirit, the receipt of the law, so that through the Holy Spirit we're transformed, so that we love the law, we love God, we're able to perform the law. But it's a transformation and a, and a liberation. For I say, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself, listen to this, more highly than he ought to think. But to think soberly, according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. So this is an instruction now in, in this process of transformation that we are not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. Now, there's a, a notion in psychology called the persona. The persona is a public representation or a public presentation of our personality. It's who we are in public. Now, all of us have a persona. A persona by itself is not a bad thing. It's just how we show up in the world. But a persona can very easily be a bad thing. And it can easily be a bad thing if we begin to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. And we begin to project an image of ourselves that is not true. Nobody is all-knowing. Nobody always has the answer. Nobody's always in a superior position. In fact, if we go on and read the rest of Romans 12, we come to learn of the gifts. And we come to learn that it's the body together that has the answers. Each member does their part. But as we do our part, we realize there's so much we cannot do. There's so much where it's inappropriate for us to do. There's so much that we are ineffective at. And so we need each other. And we begin to love the body. We begin to love and appreciate the brethren. Because we're not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought. So Pastor Murray 
again, just reminded us of the importance of story. And, you know, he quoted uh, Dennis Prager, when people stop telling their stories, they cease to be a people. And then Deacon Jan, in his message, really put a fine point on this. When he said, you know, if we stop telling our story, we lose the right to be a people. And that is ever so true. So the Bible is this book, a book of many books, which contain many, many stories. And all of these stories contribute to us understanding the overarching story of the Bible. There is one uh, meta-narrative in the Bible that all the other stories feed into. And we have to understand that story. I want to pick out one story in particular, a story that all of us know, because I think it's very illustrative of, of the overall story of the Bible. And that story is the book of Job or the story of Job. And I want to look at it from three different angles. The first is what I call the outer journey. The second is the inner journey. And then the third is the symbolic value of the book of Job. In other words, why is this book in the Bible anyway? It just seems a little bit out there. And, and it's like, why is it here? So what's the symbolic value of the book of Job? Let's begin with the outer journey. The outer journey. Every, so as I mentioned, every story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And really, the middle is what makes the story. The beginning is the setup. If somebody is going to tell us a story. In the beginning, we need to know, well, who's the story about? Where does it take place? Who are the characters involved? And that's the setting. Then we go into the middle of the story, and that's usually where there, that's the messy bit. That's where there's some sort of conflict. And coming out of that conflict, then there's resolution, and that's the end. The professional storytellers, if we look at people who write scripts for movies or plays or they write novels, they will describe this structure, this fundamental structure. And they, they will go back thousands of years to, to the oldest literature that they can find. I don't know if any of you are familiar with the story of Gilgamesh, but this is an, an old pagan story that, that uh, uh, thousands and thousands, it's the earliest literature they can find, and it has this structure. So this is how storytellers tell stories. The way they frame these beginning, middle, and end is they call it the ordinary world. The beginning is the ordinary world. And in the ordinary world, you begin to see who the main character is, and you see them just living their life. And they're comfortable with their life. And suddenly, they are thrust into the changing world. This is the middle of the story now, where the whole world, their whole world begins to change. And, and they're turned upside down and inside out, and it's just turmoil and chaos. And then coming out of that, the resolution is the new world. And in some cases, they don't come out of it. It's a tragedy, and the new world is they die, they give up, they fail. But in the case where there's success, the success comes out of the turmoil. So think about that, this old world or, or ordinary world, changing world, and then new world as we think about the book of Job. Let's begin with the ordinary world. What is Job's ordinary world? What is the beginning? What's the setting? What's going on? Let's go to Job 1 and verse 1, where we read, there was a man in the land of Uz. So we get to see who the main character is and the setting where he is, whose name was Job. And that man was perfect and upright and one that feared God 
and eschewed evil. And this is important as well, that as you are introduced to the main character, it should be a sympathetic character so that you care for the for the hero, the, the main character. You want the main character to succeed so that when he's thrust into the changing world and he faces difficulty, you actually care. If you don't care, you won't finish the story. You'll check out. So good storytellers are going to make you care about the main character so that you feel something and you stay with the story. So we like this man. He's a righteous man. He fears God and he avoids evil. And there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. So again, in the in the ordinary world, something has to be at stake. When he is thrust into the changing world, we care because he might lose everything. So we see now he has a family, he has uh, seven sons and three daughters. His substance also was 7,000 sheep. Okay, this is now we're getting a sense. This is a very wealthy man. And 3,000 camels and 500 yoke of oxen and 500 donkeys and a very great household. So lots of servants, a big household. So that this man was the greatest of all men of the East. Okay, I'm, I'm beginning to feel a bit set up here. Because this is so, uh, there's qu- there's quite a lot to lose, so I'm I'm beginning to feel invested in the story, and I certainly hope he's not going to lose all of this. And his sons went and feasted in their houses, every one his day, and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and to drink with them. Okay, this is the ordinary world. This is what happens. And it was so when the days of their feasting were gone about, that Job sent and sanctified them. And rose up early in the morning. So, so the main character is motivated. We see here he has a high motivation to uh, look after his family, but, but to concern with their spiritual welfare. So he sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning. Whenever you see that phrase in the, in the scripture, it means high motivation. It's a, it's a high priority. It's first priority, first order of business. Rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. So one offering for each child. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Notice this again. This is the ordinary world. Thus did Job continually. So this is what he always did. And these are clues that we have to pick up in the story. But this is the ordinary world. Now, from this, the main character is thrust into the changing world. This is sort of act one is the ordinary world. Act two is the changing world. And the hero reluctantly is thrust into the changing world. So now the main character is thrust into this world where everything that could have been at stake, he now risks losing it all. So we begin to read, or continue to read in verse 13, And there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house, and there came a messenger unto Job and said, The ox were plowing, and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them away. Yes, they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped to tell you. So everything is gone, but it's almost like fortunately or unfortunately, only one person survived, the messenger. So Satan allows one person to survive so that a message can be delivered to Job. Look what you've lost. While he was yet speaking, there came also another, like, uh, the, the, the storyteller set us up. Job is a righteous man. Job has a big family. He has a big heart. Now, this is a very emotional part of the story because we see the main character is losing everything. While he was yet speaking, there came also another 
and the fire of God is the fire and said the fire of God has fallen from heaven and has burned up the sheep and the servants and destroyed them. And I only am escaped alone to tell you. So again, Satan allows one person to survive to give the message to Job. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The Chaldeans made out three bands and fell upon the camels and have carried them away, yes, and slain the servants with the edge of the sword. And I only am escaped alone to tell you. So again, Satan allows one person to, to leave to give the message. While he was yet speaking, you just get this cascading sense of tragedy. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine with their elder brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young men, and they are dead. And I only am escaped alone to tell you. Wow. So suddenly, the, the main character is plunged into this changing world. Everything is different. Everything is upside down. He's lost everything. That's the middle. That's Act 2. Now, this outer journey then ends in Act 3 with the new world. What does Job's new world look like? Let's fast forward to Job 42 and verse 10. In verse 10 of Job 42, And the Lord turned the captivity of Job, or ended the captivity of Job. So this whole saga, Job has been in captivity and God now ends it. And the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Also, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. So he had a lot at the beginning of the story in the ordinary world. As he now finishes in the old world, in, in the new world, he has twice as much. Then came there unto him all his brethren and all his sisters and all they that had been of his acquaintance before and did eat bread with him in his house. And they bemoaned him and comforted him over all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Every man also gave him a piece of money and every one an earring of gold. So the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning. For he had 14,000 sheep. Remember before he had 7,000. 6,000 camels. He had 3,000 before. 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 donkeys. So everything was, his wealth was doubled and then other people were giving him gifts on top of that as well. He also had seven sons and three daughters. So his children were replaced, his wife as well, I imagine. And he called the name of the first Jemima and the name of the second Kezia and the name of the third Karen Hapuk. And in all the land were no women found so fair as the daughters of Job. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brethren. After this, lived Job a 140 years. So that little spot of trouble that he lived through, he then lived in the new world 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons even four generations. That is amazing. So Job died being old and full of days. So that is the outer journey. You see this main character in his ordinary world, he's plunged out of it. He's thrust into this changing, chaotic, traumatic uh, world of turmoil. And then he emerges out of that into this new world where in Job's case, he was, everything was, his, his blessings were twice doubled what he had before. And then he went on to live 140 years and observe four generations of his children. That's the outer journey. What's more important for us with the story of Job is the inner journey. What is going on with Job on the inside? Because as Christians, that's what we have to be concerned with. 
is this transformation, this inner transformation. What, you know, what can we learn from Job in terms of truly transforming and breaking away from the conformity of this world in the way that, that the, the servants of, of, of Satan and the way that those who are subjected to Satan, the way that they think, how do we break away from that and think like Christ? Let's go back now. And uh, remember last week, sorry, it was not last week, two weeks ago, I gave a sermon and I, I described the hero's journey. Just a, a quick refresher on the hero's journey. Remember, so we have this uh, ordinary world, changing world, new world. But we said with the hero's journey, there were these five steps where first we see the protagonist. Who, who is the hero? The Who's the main character in, in, in the movie, in the film? So we want to know the main character. And then then we see a villain will appear. In Job's case, it's Satan. And that's what happens in the ordinary world. That's That's the setting. Understand who the characters are. And then as a result of that conflict, the hero is plunged into this changing world where he enters this pit of misery and he suffers. And it seems like all is lost. And this is a tragic story. And if it ends here, it truly is a tragic story. But the only difference between a tragedy and a success story is a special resource appears. And the special resource gives to the hero, gives to the main character something that they didn't have before. And, and what I should mention here as well is what's critical to understand here is that the hero always has a goal. That's why the story is so emotionally compelling, because we care for the hero. We want them to achieve their goal. But when they're plunged into the pit of misery, it looks like all hope is lost and they will not achieve their goal. The special resource helps the hero, because as these catastrophes come to place, one of the things that the hero doesn't realize is they themselves are their own villain. There's a fatal flaw that sits within the hero's character. And the, the outer villain is really just a manifestation of that hidden flaw. And the outer villain gives the hero the opportunity to come to terms with this hidden fatal flaw. So the special resource appears. And as a result of that special resource appearing and giving the hero something new, the hero is able to fight back and win. And then they achieve this final outcome and they complete the transformation process. But that transformation process actually began in the pit of misery. That's where the transformation begins. And, and, and Deacon Jan actually hinted at that last week when he gave his message. So let's see now this inner journey, this hero's journey, and understand the inner journey that the um, brother Job uh, went through as he went through this horrendous experience. And to see this inner journey, let's go back now to Job 1. Job 1 we read of Job that there is this man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. So we, he's given a name so we can he's personalized. We get to know him as a person. And, and this triggers empathy within the reader. We now empathize with Job. And that man was perfect and upright, one that feared God and avoided evil. So now we're getting a sense of what does Job want? The hero has to want something. So what we're seeing here is he puts a lot of effort into avoiding evil. So he wants to be righteous, and I might say he wants to appear righteous. In verse 3, 
we read that he was the greatest of all the men of the East. So if you are, think of somebody you know who's just extremely wealthy, extremely popular, famous, just everybody knows. You just mention their name and everybody knows them, looks up to them. They have a reputation. So this man has a reputation to uphold. And he's known as the, the most righteous man of the East, the most blessed man of the East. And so we come to verse 5 now, and we begin to unpack his motivation. And it was so, when the days of their feasting, that is, his children were gone about, that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the num- number of all of them and said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And then notice this, thus did Job continually. So this, this he's highly motivated to protect something. And as we read the story, it's going to become clear to us he's protecting his persona. That Job is projecting a persona, a public personality, into the world. And that's going to include how his children are seen by God. And so if his children are cursing God in their hearts because he can't be sure, uh, and God punishes them, that's going to reflect on him. So he's very nervous about how his persona is maintained. Now, the writer in verse 22 shows us, you know, this, this villain appears out of nowhere, which is Satan, and he causes Job now to be thrust into this pit of misery and in this pit of despair where he suffers. But initially, the writer here in verse 22 says, in all of this, he lost everything. In all of this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. And and it's almost like there's a word missing, the word yet. In all of this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly yet. There's a process that Job is going through, and so far, he has not sinned, and he has not charged God foolishly. But as the story unfolds, he is going to sin, and he is going to charge God very foolishly. In chapter 2 and verse 10, He says to his wife, who says, you know, curse God and die. You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God? And shall we not receive evil? And then the author writes, to help us along with the inner journey, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Okay, so now in verse 10, Job is sinning. But he has a persona to protect. So he's not allowing what's going on in his heart, what's going on in his mind. He's not allowing that to come out because he has a persona to protect. He has a public image to protect. But the author is telling us something's going on inside that does not correspond with what's being projected on the outside. Now, when we come to chapter three and verse one, the author writes, after this, opened Job his mouth, and now he finally speaks. And now he's going to begin to speak foolishly. You know, in verse 22 of chapter 1, he had not spoken foolishly yet. By chapter um, 2 and verse 10, he's now sinning inside. The real person is sinning, but the persona is reflecting still righteousness. Now in chapter 3 and verse 1, Now he sins with his mouth. Now he begins to speak foolishly. After this, opened Job his mouth and cursed his day 
And Job spoke and said, Let the day perish wherein I was born, and the night in which it was said, There is a man-child conceived. Let that day be darkness. Let not God regard it from above, neither let the light shine upon it. So now he has an issue with God. God is the creator, and God was foolish to create him. God should not have done this, and he curses the day that God created him. Verse 24, For my sighing comes before I eat, and my roarings are poured out like the water. So we, we were introduced to Job as this highly motivated individual. Whenever his children gathered and feasted, he would get up really, really early the next morning because he was afraid that they may have cursed God in their heart and God would then curse them. So now we read here, because the hero always wants something. So what he wants is to protect this persona. And now in verse 25, we see this starting to come out. For the thing, verse Job 3, verse 25, for the thing which I greatly feared, so there's something that he greatly feared. There was something he was terribly afraid of. The thing which I greatly feared is come upon me. And that which I was afraid of is come unto me. This does not sound like a man who has an intimate relationship with God. When we were introduced to Job in chapter 1 and verse 1, it sounded like a righteous man. The, the outward persona looked very righteous. But now that all of this catastrophe has come about, it is revealing to him and to us what is really going on on the inside. Somebody who is intimate with God, their greatest fear is not that they would lose everything. It's not that God is just waiting to pounce. You know, God, God is just watching my children, waiting to destroy them, and I have to hold him off. That's not the way someone who has an intimate relationship with Christ thinks. So again, it's begging the question, how do we, are we, are we true in terms of our persona and our true identity? So now, uh, the story goes into this massive debate where Job has his three friends and they sit quietly with him and they suffer with him in this pit of despair, this pit of misery. They're with him for seven days and they don't say a thing. But eventually they have to speak. And now the book of Job is just full of words. These guys speak and they debate and they preach and they've got all kinds of advice for him. Job doesn't take it sitting down. So everybody's philosophy here is that God is a punishing God. And you just have to put a foot wrong. As long as you put your foot right, he's okay with you. The minute you put a foot wrong, he's going to crush you. And so they're like, Job, you had to do something. There's something. Tell us what you did. You're, we're not buying your, your persona anymore. You know, we, we all were, we were all believing you were some kind of righteous figure. Obviously that's not true or you wouldn't be punished the way you're being punished. Job does not take this line down. Even though he probably can't stand up, he fights back and he's like, no, I am a righteous man. And so this uh, goes back and forth. Let's just begin to hear because the, the, the author says that initially Job did not speak foolishly. But as you know, in, in the abundance of words, there's much opportunity for sin. So here now in Job 29 and verse 5, we read, When the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were about me, when I washed my steps with butter, and the rock poured me out rivers of oil, when I went out the gate, out to the gate through the city, when I prepared my seat in the street, so he's going back and he's remembering the, old, the ordinary world. And he's longing for the ordinary world. And what he's remembering in the ordinary world, we're going to read now, what, what, what does he prize? 
What does he treasure about the ordinary world? Is it, you know, I remember taking long walks with God. I remember the intimacy we shared. I remember those special moments in the garden when I could just feel the love of God with me. Is this what Job remembers from the ordinary world? Or is it his persona? He, so he says he's looking back in verse 8. What, what happened in the ordinary world? The young men saw me. They saw me. And they hid themselves. They had so much respect and awe for me that when they saw me, they hid themselves. The aged, they stood up. They arose and stood up. That's how much I was respected. My persona was really something in the ordinary world. The princes refrained from talking and laid their hand on their mouth. That's the, the presence my persona had. The nobles held their peace and their tongue cleaved to the roof of their mouth. When the ear heard me, then it blessed me. And when the eye saw me, it gave witness to me. Why? Because I delivered the poor that cried and the fatherless and him that had none to help him. The blessing of him that was ready to perish came upon me. And I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My judgment was a robe and a diadem. And then verse 20. My glory. I'm remembering that the, old, the good old days. And am, am I remembering my intimacy with God as a righteous man? My glory was fresh in me. And my bow was renewed in my hand. Unto me men gave ear and waited and kept silence at my counsel. After my words, they spoke not again. My word was the final word. And my speech dropped upon them. And they waited for me as for the rain. And they opened their mouth wide as for the latter rain. Now, chapter 30 and verse 1. That's the, that was the old world, the ordinary world. He's left that behind. He's been thrust into this changing world. What's the condition in the changing world that in his mind is a stark contrast to the ordinary world that he left? Verse 1 of chapter 30. But now they that are younger than I have me in derision, whose fathers I would have disdained to have set with the dogs of my flock. So the big deal to Job. And what this is all about is the loss of his persona, that that persona no longer works. He's still who he is. He's still Job, but nobody's buying the persona anymore. And this is his great loss. This is what he's grieving over. As he looks back to the ordinary world, what he's remembering is his persona. And now they that are younger than I have me in derision, whose fathers I would have disdained, to have set with the dogs of my flock. So you see, he's got a bit of an issue. He's looking at these people, and, and to him, he wouldn't even let their fathers be with his dogs. That's how he looked at these people. They were children of fools, verse 8. Yeah, children of base men. They were viler than the earth. This is some quite some judgment. Maybe they were, maybe they weren't. I don't know, but it's quite a judgment. They were viler than the earth. And now... My persona is destroyed. Now am I their song? Yes, I'm their byword. They abhor me. They flee far from me and spare not to spit in my face. Well, Jesus Christ came, left heaven, came to earth, and they spit in his face. And that was not the big deal to Christ. He opened not his mouth. 
because he was he had a purpose that was beyond himself. What we're seeing now is Job did not have a purpose that was beyond himself. His purpose was his the preservation and the exaltation of his persona. And now all of that is lost. They abhor me and they flee far from me and spare not to spit in my face because he's done this. God has done this because he has loosed my cord and afflicted me. They have also let loose the bridle before me. So I want you to listen now to what might be one of the most blasphemous statements in the Bible. And it comes out of the mouth of Job. And people, because they take it out of context, they might think it's a righteous thing to say. It is blasphemy. And it's in Job 13. In Job 13 and verse 13, Job says to his friends, basically shut up. Hold your peace. Leave me alone that I may speak. And let come on me what will. So he knows he's about to say something that is not desirable. But he doesn't care. He's had it. His friends, in a sense, have provoked him. They've stirred him up. Leave me alone. Shut up. Let me speak. And then whatever happens, who cares? Why do I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hand? This is the statement. That is a statement of blasphemy. He says, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. But I will maintain my own ways before him. Listen to what he's saying. What's he saying between the lines? He's saying that God's character cannot be trusted. That in fact, God may do evil. But he is a man that avoids evil. He is committed to eschewing evil. He will not commit evil. God might. So in this uh, relationship that I have with God, and it's gone sideways, it's gone south, obviously something's wrong. Well, you know what? In this relationship, God may do evil, but because I'm committed to avoiding evil, even if God does evil, I'm still going to trust him because I'm committed not to do evil. He's putting himself above God. He says in verse 16, he shall also be my salvation for a hypocrite shall not come before him. And this is the irony. Job is the biggest hypocrite. He doesn't see it yet. And he's going to stay in this pit of misery until he comes to realize this fatal flaw that he's carrying around, that he is a self-righteous hypocrite, but yet he's blinded to it because the persona shines so brightly, he's blinding himself with his own persona. Let's go back to uh, Job 31 as he continues to be eloquent in, in his blasphemy. Here in Job 31 and verse 32 He's again uh, just saying how righteous he is, that the, the friends are trying to tell him, there's something wrong with you. you. You obviously have upset God, and God is punishing you because you've done something wrong. Uh, you know, you put a foot wrong. Even his wife said that, curse God and die. So their whole concept of God is that if you put a foot wrong, he'll crush you. And these are Job's best friends. So they all kind of think the same way. But he's saying, no, 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 I haven't done anything wrong. I haven't done anything wrong. I haven't done anything wrong. So Job 31 and verse 32, the stranger did not lodge in the street, but I opened my doors to the traveler. Look how righteous I am, that if somebody was coming and they had no place to stay, hey, stay with me. I'm a righteous man. Then notice this, and a lot of us miss this in verse 33. If I covered my transgressions as Adam, Job has no respect for Adam, and neither should we. Adam was a treacherous sinner. 
but you, it's not presented clearly. If we read the scripture clearly, Adam was an open rebel. And, and Job understands that. And he says, okay, if I was as bad as Adam, I'd, I'd get it. I'm not like Adam. If I covered my transgressions as Adam by hiding my iniquity in my bosom. Then he goes on uh, to say here, if we drop down to verse 35, Oh, that one would hear me. Behold, let's hear now what he wants. My desire is that the Almighty would answer me, that my adversary had written a book. So he's seeing now God is his adversary, and he wants God to answer him, and he wants God to write a book about this. Well, he, he, gets, he gets his wish. He, he gets to, uh, God will answer him, and now we have this book for thousands of years. We can read about this self-righteous hypocrite and the transformation he had to go through to really become a truly righteous servant of God. He says in verse 36, Surely I would take it upon my shoulder and bind it as a crown to me. So he has no clue that he's done anything wrong. He thinks that God is in the wrong. And he would love for them to be in court together so that he could parade his righteousness and God's unrighteousness for all to see. I would declare it unto him the number of my, I would declare unto him the number of my steps as a prince would I go near unto him. I would just love to, to speak to God face to face. I would, I would approach him like a king, like a, like a, a, like royalty. And I would show him my righteousness and show him his unrighteousness. In verse 40, let thistles grow instead of wheat and cockle instead of barley. And then it says, the words of Job are ended. So it's a, it's a lot of words. There's this, there were three men and Job was holding them all off. They were all trying to show him there's something wrong with you, Job. And he was just, it's like uh, a table tennis. Every time they put the ball, he sent it back, put a spin on it, slammed it back to them. He would not accept at all. He was constantly deflect, deflecting. And finally, the words of Job are ended. Now, notice in verse 1 of chapter 32. So these three men ceased to answer Job. Why did they stop answering Job? Because he was righteous in his own eyes. They just like they just couldn't get through to him. They were convinced there's something wrong with him. But no matter how hard they tried, he just kept coming back with how righteous he is. I did this and I did this and I did this and I did that. And he and he got to the point because initially he didn't sin with his lips, but he got to the point where I'm better than God. I am more you can't trust God, but you can trust me. And then finally they just gave up. Now, we come to the point in the hero's journey where enter the special resource. So the whole thing will he will die here in this pit of misery unless a special resource appears and allows him to to gain some new insight or some new ability that he didn't have before that he can begin to transform and become a new person and resolve the fatal flaw and then overcome all these obstacles and enter the new world. The special resource is Elihu. So finally, the, the friends have nothing more to say. And in verse 2 of thir- uh, Job 32, we read, Then was kindled the wrath of Elihu, or Elihu, the son of Barakel the Buzite, of the kindred of Ram. Against Job was his wrath kindled. He's been sitting there the whole time listening to every single word that Job said. And there's a point where Job says, you know, 
the ear tastes words as the mouth tastes meat. And Elihu comes back and says those very words to Job, that the ear tastes words as the mouth tastes meat. So Elihu has been very discerning. He's listening to the friends. He's listening to Job. He's listening between the lines. And he is now furious with Job. Why? Because he justified himself rather than God. Job had a big problem. He would throw God under the bus as long as he could protect his persona. Also, against his three friends was his wrath kindled. So all four of them are spiritual imbeciles. All four of them have no clue. And Elihu's having to sit there and listening to all of this. So he's furious with Job, but then he's angry with the friends because they had found no answer, and yet they condemned Job. So because of their philosophy, they were happy to condemn Job, but they didn't have an answer. They couldn't show Job, well, this is it. But they were happy to condemn him. And at the same time, Job was happy to condemn God as long as he could protect his persona. Now, Elihu had waited until Job had spoken because they were older than him. When Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, then his wrath was kindled. In verse 17, I said, I will answer also my part. I also will show my opinion. For I am full of matter. The spirit within me, it's bursting. It's, 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 uh, it's like it's, it's, dis- it's driving me. It says constraints me, but it's driving me. So this man is inspired by the Spirit of God. And in our lives, the Holy Spirit is that special resource that enables us to see what we couldn't see before, to understand what we couldn't understand before. And now Elihu is going to bring this understanding to Job. Behold, my belly is as wine which has no vent. So it's fermenting and it's going to burst. It is ready to burst like new bottles. So this thing is so clear. None of these four elderly gentlemen see it. Elihu sees it so clearly through the power of the Spirit. I will speak that I may be refreshed. I have to relieve myself. I'm going to speak that I may be refreshed. I will open my lips and answer. Chapter 33 and verse 6. Behold, I am according to your wish in God's stead. I also am formed out of the clay. So he wished he could have an audience with God. He wished God would answer him. Elihu is saying, you know what? Your wish has been granted. I'm here and I'm going to speak on behalf of God. Verse 8. Surely you have spoken in my hearing, and I have heard the voice of your words, saying, I am clean without transgression. I am innocent, neither is there iniquity in me. Behold, he, that is God, Job says, God finds occasions against me. He counts me for his enemy. God is just doing this for sport. This is sort of like the, the, the Greek, the ancient Greek uh, myths and their concept of God that, you know, Zeus is there just throwing down uh, arrows of lightning to destroy men just for sport. He says, he finds occasions against me. He counts me for his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks. He makes all my paths. And then Elihu says, behold, in this, Job, you are not just. This is your flaw. In this, you are not just. I will answer you that God is greater than man. You have no clue. You have no relationship with God. You're trying to avoid evil. The the, the text opens with this man who is trying to avoid evil. But you don't understand what it means to have a relationship with God. God is this academic concept to you, that you just have to avoid evil to be blessed. Chapter 34 and verse 1, Furthermore, Elihu answered and said, Hear my words, O you wise men, 
and give ear unto me, that you that have knowledge. Here he is, he's quoting Job. For the ear tries words as the mouth tastes meat. I've been listening very carefully and chewing what I'm hearing and digesting it. Let us choose to us judgment. Let us know among ourselves what is good. For Job has said, listen, I was listening to this whole thing. You guys listened to it as well, but you didn't detect the fatal flaw. I heard it. And through the power of the Spirit, I'm going to share it with you now. For Job has said, I am righteous, and God has taken away my judgment. The problem is with God. Should I lie against my right? My wound is incurable, without transgression. Listen to Elihu. Elihu. What man? Is there a man on earth like Job? Who drinks up scorning like water? He's just, he's just, he's just drinking up curses upon himself. As if, as if, as if he was a thirsty man in the middle of the desert and just couldn't get enough water. He cannot have enough scorn. What man? This, this Elijah was saying, this man is disgusting. Isn't this man disgusting? What man is like Job who drinks up scorning like water, which goes in company with the workers of iniquity and walks with wicked men? Job is the chief of wicked men. Why? For he has said, it profits a man nothing that he should delight himself with God. If Job could have his way and wear his righteousness as a crown and publish his version of the story, basically it would say, no matter how righteous you try to be, God is is unwell. And God will just out of just for fun, just because he's bored, God will strike you down. And he'll play with you and cause you to endure intense suffering just because that's just that's just the kind of person he is. But, hey, I'm just so righteous. So he's basically saying to all wicked men, there's no point in repenting. So he's the chief of all wicked men. For he has said it profits a man nothing that he should delight himself with God. Therefore, hearken unto me, you men of understanding. This is Elihu. Far be it from God that he should do wickedness. Are you kidding me? Like, let's start there. Let's rewind the tape. Let's go all the way back to the beginning and let's start with this understanding. Far be it from God that he should do wickedness and from the Almighty that he should commit iniquity. So however we try to analyze this situation, whatever conclusion we come to, one thing that's going to be the furthest thing from our mind is that God should do wickedness. So so we're not going to go there. We'll try to find our answer somewhere else. In chapter 35 and verse 1, Elihu spoke moreover and said, Think you this to be right, that you say, My righteousness is more than God's? Come on, Job. Do you think, is that reasonable? That you, a human being, no matter how great you are, okay, you're a great human being, but do you think it's appropriate for you to come to the conclusion that your righteousness is more than God's. In chapter 36 and verse 1, Elihu also proceeded and said, Suffer me a little, allow me, and I will show you that I have yet to speak on God's behalf. So Job, you weren't speaking on God's behalf. You were speaking on the, the behalf of your persona. I'll speak on God's behalf. I will fetch my knowledge from afar. I will ascribe righteousness to my maker. Job was doing the opposite. In order to protect his persona, he was willing to ascribe wickedness to his maker. Elihu says, I'm going to ascribe righteousness to my maker, 
For truly, my word shall not be false, like Job's. He that is perfect in knowledge is with me. Behold, God is mighty, and he despises not any. He is mighty in strength and wisdom. He preserves not the life of the wicked, but gives right to the poor. He withdraws not his eyes from the righteous, but with kings are they on the throne. And we see that in Revelation 20, when the poor, the despised, those that were beheaded, they're now sitting on thrones with kings. But with kings are they on the throne. Yes, he does establish them forever, and they are exalted. God is righteous. Come on. Never think for a minute. Never allow it to enter your imagination that God is unrighteous. And then we'll just quickly uh, wrap up here in verse 38, as we just finished this transformation. Verse 1. Now, Elihu brings him to his senses. Then God answers him. He wishes that God would answer him. God answers him in verse 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? So he endorses everything that Elihu said and basically says to Job, You are the author of darkness. You have been taking light and replacing it with darkness. Gird up now your loins like a man, for I will demand of you, and answer, and you will answer me. So now the transformation is almost complete. We see in chapter 40, verse 1, Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall he that contends with the Almighty instruct him? Job, are you going to teach me? He that reproves God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, so the transformation now, is coming to a conclusion. This, If Job was not thrust into this pit of misery, he would never come to see himself. So he comes to now the realization, verse 4, Behold, the persona is gone. Okay, let's stop fronting. The persona is gone. I'm vile. Behold, I am vile. What, what shall I answer you? I will lay my hand upon my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice. It's over. I will proceed no further. I'm not going to hold my persona up as an idol and sacrifice the Almighty upon the altar of my persona. I'm going to stop doing that. So God now asks him another question here in verse 8. He's not quite done with him yet. Will you disannul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be righteous? Is that your modus operandi? That in order to protect this persona, you will sacrifice me? You know, again, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. He, he might have a problem with his character, but you, don't, you won't find any problem with my character. Come on, Job. So now, Job's transformation is complete. He realizes just how off the mark he was, that he was he's, he's basically an idolater. He was worshiping his persona. And now in verse 42, in verse 1, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything, and that no thought can be withheld from you. So in all this, initially, Job did not sin with his lips, but there was something going on in his thoughts. And this whole process has brought Job to realize, okay, the persona and the inner being have to be reconciled. And God knows. There's no point pretending in front of God. He knows what's going on, really. Verse 5, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Job did not have a relationship with God. 
in a sense, Job had a relationship with evil in the sense that he wanted to avoid it. His eye was on evil to try to avoid the evil. And his, his children might be evil. He's got to pray for the evil. He's just focused on the evil. He actually wasn't focused on God. Now he actually knows God. Therefore, he says, that whole persona thing, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Transformation, inner journey, complete. So now we come to the end of the story for Job in 42 and verse 10. And the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as before. So that is the inner journey, the hero's journey. The villain appears, thrust him out of the ordinary world, thrust him into the changing world. He suffers in this pit, but it's in the pit of suffering that the transformation takes place. It's like a furnace that just burns off the dross. And now we have the fine gold. And now he can go forward into the new world where he lives for 140 years. And he's truly blessed now. And no more fronting, no more uh, image, you know, image management. Now it's just, hey, this is who I am. So what is the symbolic value of this story? And, and why should we continue to tell each other this story? Why should we continue to study this story? Why should we tell this story to the next generation? Again, if we lose these stories, we lose our identity. Well, I believe that just as the Song of Solomon is highly symbolic and it pictures Christ in the church, Job also pictures Christ in the church. That Job is a type of Israel. And I think the hint of this is right here in chapter 42 at the end of the transformation uh, and the entrance of the new world. In verse 10, this language that the Lord turned the captivity of Job. So this is now the turning point. The Lord turns the captivity of Job. Let's remember that phrase. And go to Deuteronomy 30 and verse 1. The Lord turned the captivity of Job. In Deuteronomy 30 and verse 1, Moses writes, It shall come to pass when all these things are come upon you, and all these things came upon Job, the blessing and the curse. So Job enjoyed incredible blessing, but he also enjoyed incredible or endured incredible cursings. So Israel is to have both. When all these things are come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you shall call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and you shall return unto the Lord your God. God is looking for true repentance from Israel and shall obey his voice according to all that I command you this day, you and your children, with all your heart and with all your soul. And we see that repentance in Job when he says, you know, I heard of you before, but now I see you. And I'm vile. I repent in dust and ashes. I abhor myself because I was trying to put about that I'm this righteous person. And today, you know, obviously the, the tribes, the northern tribes of Israel have been scattered. And we have the, the southern tribe of Judah remaining. But if you show a Jew today, a, 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 a non-Christian Jew, a Jew that doesn't accept Christ, uh, you show them Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, 
And it's like, what could be clearer that this is uh, a prophecy of the Lord Jesus? And they'll read that. And you know their conclusion? Oh, no, no, no. This is not about Jesus. This is about the Jewish nation. We are the suffering servant. We are so righteous. And we are the ones who have to suffer for the sake of the world. What? That's your concept of yourself? That you, you would condemn God? That, that all of this suffering on the Jews, the Jews have a problem with God because of all this suffering that they, so they know that they're righteous, but God is the one that has a problem. Well, it's a very similar story to Job. He says, you'll call them to mind from all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you and shall return unto the Lord your God and shall obey his voice according to all that I command you this day, you and your children with all your heart and with all your soul. Notice the language now in verse 3, that then the Lord your God will turn your captivity. So he turned Job's captivity. Job had all the blessings and then all the curses and then the curses were the captivity, and God turned the captivity. And the prophecy for Israel, all the tribes of Israel, is that they're to have the blessings, but then they're to have the curses. And when they finally repent and acknowledge who they are and, and break away from the persona and, and be real with God, that he will turn their captivity and have compassion upon you and will return and gather you from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. If any of yours be driven out unto the outmost parts of heaven, from there will the Lord your God gather you, and from there will he fetch you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land, listen to this, into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. And he will do you good and multiply you above your fathers. So in the new world, Job, the wealth that Job had was far greater than what he had in the ordinary world before the, the, the turmoil. Well, the promise here for Israel through Moses is that when they're blessed in the new world, the, the wealth and the blessings will be far greater than what they originally had. So it's blessings followed by cursings, followed by the greatest blessings ever. And that 140 years that Job lived after, because he was an old man, and then he lived another 140 years, is a symbol of eternal life after they come through the turmoil. Now, in Isaiah... We see this fulfilled. So every prophet is basically repeating Moses. So whatever prophecy we read, we need to go back to the Torah to see how is it uh, um, uh, magnifying and giving us greater detail and greater color and texture of the original prophecy from Moses. So here in Isaiah 40 and verse 1, we read the instruction to somebody, comfort you, comfort you, my people, says your God. Speak comfortably to Jerusalem. And cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished. That second act of turmoil, it's over now. That the, all of that pain and suffering and turmoil has achieved its purpose. That her warfare is accomplished and her iniquity is pardoned. For she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Just as Job had to receive, and by God's permission, all of that suffering to, to burn off the dross. In chapter 60 of Isaiah, verse 1, he says, Arise, shine, for your light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth and gross darkness the people, but the Lord shall arise upon you, and his glory shall be seen upon you, just as it was seen upon Job. And the Gentiles shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. 
Lift up your eyes round about and see all they gather themselves together. Look, look, look what's happening now in the new world. All they gather themselves together, they come to you. Your son shall come from far and your daughter shall be nursed at your side. Then you shall see and flow together and your heart shall fear and be enlarged because the abundance of the sea shall be converted unto you and the wealth of the Gentiles shall come to you. So just in the same way at, uh, at the end, Job, his brothers and his sisters and all the people, they came and they brought him wealth. He's a symbol of Israel. And Israel and the tribes of Israel have to go through this turmoil in order to come out the other end and be useful to God, to be transformed. And the church, we are the first fruits of Israel. So we have to go through this process and any suffering that we might go through, it is all for our good. So rather than be discouraged by any turmoil, by any suffering that we might be encountering, we should hold our purpose the way Christ held it. So there's a, there's a choice in suffering to be like Christ or to be like Job. And the sooner we can be like Christ, the, the, the quicker the, the suffering becomes unnecessary. The more we hold on to our persona, the, the more necessary and the more intense the suffering has to be. You know, in first four, verse, first Peter, um, four and verse one, he says, for as much then as Christ has suffered, for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. So Christ came to earth and he suffered so that there could be a first fruits. Now we as first fruits must arm ourselves likewise. Let's be willing to suffer so there can be a fall harvest. For, for, then as, for as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So this is the whole point. So, again, every story has three acts. There's the ordinary world. Then there's the changing world that we're plunged into. And the purpose of that is to have the main character come to terms with the fatal flaw that he's been, or she has been carrying so that it can be resolved. And they can then move on to the new world. This is God's plan for Israel. And this is God's plan for us as the first fruits of Israel. But in that world of turmoil, that special resource has to appear that gives the hero something they didn't have before so they can fight back and overcome. And Christ tells us that we have to overcome. If we're not overcomers, we will not sit on his throne. Therefore, there has to be something to overcome. And there needs to be something we can use to overcome. And that's what we're counting towards now. One more day, and we come into the day of Pentecost, when we celebrate God's granting of the Holy Spirit so that we can keep his law and so that we can be part of this grand purpose of harvesting Israel so that through Israel he can harvest the world. So from slavery to freedom and then what? True freedom through true transformation. Let's drop the persona worship. Let's worship God. Let's be willing to, to throw our persona under the bus that God might be glorified, not the other way around. We conclude in Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4 and verse 22. That you put off concerning the former conduct, the old man, that old way of being, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. So Job had, had, he wanted something. He thought it was righteousness, 
but it was a deceitful lust. It was the desire for his persona to be aggrandized. We have to put off the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. So as we complete this count to Pentecost, what we are concerned about is not the persona, not the presentation of the public self, but true holiness, where God can truly use us in the new world, where we can help him with the fall harvest, and through the fall harvest, the salvation of the whole world. God bless. Thank you, Pastor Adrian. Uh, it certainly has been a, a uh, quick seven weeks that we have we have come through, the Feast of Weeks. And uh, as we consider all the messages that have been given, it has been interesting to see the nice thread that has gone through. And we, as has been mentioned, we've come to the, uh, as of, uh, when the Sabbath ends this evening, we will have come through seven complete weeks, and we will have arrived at the day of Pentecost. And certainly appreciate all your efforts in uh, putting together that message. And it's, uh, we've learned a lot about story over the last uh, number of weeks here during this uh, Feast of Weeks. The Sabbath is the Feast of Weeks, and looking forward to uh, more learning about the story of God and his people and his transformation of his people. So thank you again. We uh, Just some closing comments, just a reminder that uh, Sabbath services here on this uh, uh, this station uh, will be again tomorrow on the day of Pentecost at 2.30 p.m. Reminder that it is a holy day. Uh, so we do take up an offering. We won't do so, obviously, electronically, but we'll let you look after your uh, faithfulness to, to that. And uh, certainly appreciate uh, everyone coming together in the comments on the chat. And good to see us fellowshipping through the chat room. We will now uh, close in prayer. I'll handle the closing prayer. And immediately after the closing prayer, we will sing one final hymn, page 22 in your hymn books. But words, again, will be broadcast on the screen. We'll sing Blessed Assurance, but first the closing prayer, if you'll all bow your heads with me. Our holy, righteous, and perfect Father, our creator, our sustainer, our lawgiver, and to you, our master, our high priest, our king of kings, and our lord of lords, we ask you to accept us, your, your people, into your presence before your throne on this Sabbath day, on this seventh Sabbath of the Feast of Weeks. So very grateful that over the process of time, you have revealed yourself to us. You've revealed your plan. You have reached down and granted us forgiveness upon our repentance. We ask you now, Holy God, and you, Jesus Christ, our mediator there on our behalf, that you continue to transform us into the people you need us to be, into the first fruits that you want us to be. The Not what we hope for ourselves, but what you hope for us. And we are so very grateful that in the preservation of your word, that it is full of the story of how to be redeemed, how to, to, how to come into your presence ultimately and be glorified by you. As we've heard so many times, salvation is a process, is a lifelong process. We just want to thank you for reaching down amongst the 
many, many billions of people on this earth and calling out those of us that are in the body. It was, again, nothing that we did. We certainly are just want to extend our gratitude and our gratefulness for all that you've done. We look forward to the full and complete arrival of the day of Pentecost tomorrow. We ask you to be with your entire body around this globe, around this planet. Help us to take our walk seriously, that this time that we've been given between our baptism and the return of your son is one where we need to work with you and work with the Holy Spirit, putting in the time, putting in the effort to transform into the people you need us to be, to the the children you need us to be. We thank you for these words. We thank you for this day. We thank you for this holy time where we pause from serving ourselves and we serve you. We thank you for holding up the technology, for guiding us through that, that your, your people may be blessed, edified, and glorified. And as we conclude here today, we again ask you to keep us safe, keep us focused that this is a double Sabbath, that we go from one Sabbath into the next. And thank you for the privilege and honor that it is to be your children. We ask you to close these services, bring us all back uh, tomorrow on the holy day, your holy time. And thank you for all that you both have done for us. We ask all of this in the confidently in the name of our elder brother, our soon coming king, our savior, our high priest, our Lord of Lords and King of Kings, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Amen. So thank you, brethren, for joining us. And we now will close with page 22, Blessed Assurance. And we'll see you tomorrow.